Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to History Becomes Her, a mashable podcast about women making history right now and the women who paved the way for them. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. Before we get started, this episode contains discussion of suicide. Porna Bell is an author and journalist who is actively challenging our ingrained beliefs about mental health, loss and strength. In 2015, Belle lost her husband and her life changed overnight. Through powerfully moving honesty, she has made it her mission to challenge the stigma and stereotypes surrounding grief and coping with sudden loss. In her new book, In Search of Silence, Belle writes about moving forward after loss, rebuilding her life and taking a radical life decision to find peace and silence. Belle is also a power lifter and she found that lifting weights helped her find inner strength. My name is Purna Bell. I'm an author and journalist and I work a lot in the space of mental health, women's journalism and also health and fitness. Welcome to you. So this is a podcast about women who are moving the cultural needle and making change in the world. And I I wanted to know who inspires you and is there a woman from the past or present day who's had a big effect on your life? Uh, The person I would say you know I think when you kind of think about stuff like that like it's always a tough question to answer because I think women who are like let's say famous or in the public eye or who did great things um, are great women but um, for me the women who've impacted me are always the women that I've kind of known and maybe grown up with a little bit and for sure the person I would pick is my paternal grandmother. So um, she was someone, I think when we were growing up, we always knew her as the fun grandma. And she always used to like, you know, have this like really mad wardrobe and have really bright red lipstick and so on. But I don't think I really knew enough about her until I got a bit older Mm. and, and realized like what a phenomenal woman she was. So basically she lost her husband who died of a heart attack, my grandfather, when um, my dad was 16 and she would have been probably, I think in her early forties. And she raised four children by herself. Like it wasn't like she had a massive inheritance. They weren't particularly well off. Three of them became doctors and one of them became a fighter pilot. And um, she was hugely sociable. She just had this like incredible energy about her. And I mean, she passed away unfortunately about you know 15 to 16 years ago and there are so many questions that I have for her Mm. but one of the things that we really love doing is is telling stories about her and there's always something new to find out about her and I just think she was absolutely phenomenal. My maternal grandmother like you you've reminded me of her in a way because I I don't know whether it was that generation of women that you know they had to be real tough cookies you know and had they they dealt with so much and Mm. they just had this very like they just got on with it in a really admirable way yeah I mean I don't know I don't know how alone some Mm. of them must have felt in all of that and I and I assume they would have done but I I think you're right there was no outlet you know to particularly talk to your friends about it or your partner and so on Um, and I think that they just put one foot in front of the other and there just was no other like so let's say for my grandmother there was no other option she had four kids who needed to be educated and needed to kind of earn a living and start their own families and so on Mm. 
but I, my one regret is I do have so many questions for how she actually handled it and also seemed to do it yeah. with a lot of humor and a lot of grace as well. That's so admirable, really. Mm. And you've you've previously said that you grew up believing that you know, mental health wasn't really a thing. And I'm of uh, the same generation that didn't grow up using words like anxiety or even thinking about my mental well-being. Um, and I wondered what you, how, like, what you think needs to change in the way that we, we talk about mental health as a society. I think for me, the biggest thing around how we change, how we talk about mm. it is I think we're getting better. I think that you know, some of us do feel empowered to say that we don't want to go out or we don't want to do something or we just can't commit to a particular thing because we might be struggling with our mental health. And that is something that has definitely shifted or even mm -hmm. like accessing services, right? Like going for counseling or whatever that might be and maybe being a little bit more vocal about it than we were before. Um, but I think that one thing for me that needs to change is number one, like how we deal with it in the workplace. I think it's still very much um, if you're lucky to work for a, somewhere that has a good understanding mm -hmm. of mental health and can support you, then great. And, you know, if you, if you aren't, then actually your mental health can like massively, massively suffer in all of that. Um, but also the other thing is about making decisions that are right for you that are actually about safeguarding your, your mental well-being and your mental health. And I think that we still have this idea of mental health being something that we deal with when there is a problem, when something has become acute. Mm. And the thing that I'm really interested in is that in massive part of the journey before that, where what were the things that kind of happened? It's not to sort of, you know, assign blame or anything like that, but what were the things that, that possibly could have been implemented that may have fortified your life a bit better or may have made you, um, may have helped in terms of resilience and so on. And mm -hmm. I definitely know how that applies to me. And, and, you know, for example, things like routine, agreeing to things because I think I should or I feel obligated rather than actually taking a considered approach around my own mental health. Yeah. Um, and that for me is one of the things around how we're, we're sort of more the guardians of our own mental well-being, mm. um, rather than thinking that we're not worth bothering with or our needs aren't important enough. For people who are from a generation that missed out on kind of conversations about mental health in school, um, or even just like culturally as well, you know, how can we correct the gap in our knowledge, like as a generation that kind of missed out on that? I think that, I mean, I, it's something that is ongoing with my parents. Mm. And I think that what I've seen happen is that they've, they've learned stuff around mental health, which they didn't know before. And whether that's a consequence of it just being in the papers a bit more, um, on TV a bit more, something that I talk to them quite a lot about. It's a space that I work in a lot. So, you know, I'll send them the pieces and stuff that I've written. But I think that um, what I have learned is that being ignorant about these kinds of things um, has been hugely detrimental to me. And I think that if we're laboring under the idea that let's say, oh, I, you know, if I'm saying, oh, well, I don't know anyone who uh, has mental illness and so on, mm. and it doesn't really affect me, um, at some point down the line, it is like, and, and also it's just not realistic. Like if you are a person who works and who has friends and family, mm. um, it is by virtue of statistics that you will know someone who struggles with their mental health. And most likely if you don't think that someone has issues, they're just doing a very good job of trying to pretend that everything is okay. So, you know, they don't get found out. Um, but I would just say it's about reading like the articles of like, let's say lived in people with lived in experience around, um, you know, mental health problems. It's also, I think, just being aware of, um, so where uh, there are campaigns and, you know, mm. the, um, you know, your local authorities do and that charities do and so on. And I think that in terms of correcting, uh, the gap in the knowledge, like, let's say when you're looking at something like children's mental health and so on, 
Um, it's knowledge that may not directly apply to where you are particularly in your life at the moment, but it might be knowledge that might help someone down the line. So even if mates, even if a mate is telling you a story about something and is just like, oh, you know, this person's like behaving really weirdly and I don't know why that has happened to me so many times where someone has told me about a friend that has been behaving, quote marks, really weirdly, um, has upset them, has hurt them or whatever. And I've listened to the story and I've gone, well, look, I'm not a professional, but to me, it sounds like that person is really depressed. And just having that kind of insight, you know, if you are someone that has like friendships and relationships with people, um, understanding that mental, understanding that mental health um, and illness isn't necessarily about having like clinical knowledge and so on, but like just it, it helps you to understand how people work and how they operate and how actually when someone's behaving in a particular way, it might not be because they're behaving that way because that's their character, but there might just be something else going on. One of the things I I really admire about you is how open and honest you've been about like your experience of living with grief. Um, and I I wanted to talk briefly about, you know, uh, the death of your husband and how how the reality of grief differs from our kind of cultural ideas surrounding bereavement. Yeah. And yeah, what during this kind of unspeakably tough time, what did you learn about grief? So Rob passed away this this year it will be five years and um and I think that before that happened uh I didn't really have much of an experience with bereavement barring you know my grandmother's passing away mm. um and then that was a very different type of bereavement and this was a shock it was you know absolutely devastating and it was just it was like an unnatural death it's something that shouldn't really have happened um he died when he was 39 and and took his own life and um and there was a lot of intensity leading up to that day and then after he passed away i just remember thinking that it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And the way that I described it to someone was basically like everything, like your body and your mind being on fire, like all the time. And just not having any respite from that, apart from maybe when you might be asleep. And I think that there's a way that we have, either we don't speak about grief, um, and that was hugely problematic for me, where I realized that actually there is this incredible wall of silence around grief. So when you are going some, through something which is as intense and unrelenting as that, and then you kind of have to slot back into your life and there's just no vocabulary, there's no space given to you, it's not invited into conversations, um, that that the sort of the contrast of those two things is is absolutely unbearable. So I kind of understand in retrospect now why people just don't socialize, why they don't do anything, why they maybe don't really leave their house because it, it's just a very hard situation to be in. But also the idea that grief moves in stages, um, and I'm definitely not the first to say this, but the the timeline of your grief is your own. Like it's it's mm-hmm. absolutely unique. It's like a thumbprint. Um, it does not affect everyone in the same way, even if you have lost the same person. Um, and I think that that's really important because there is this, I, I understand why people want to make sense of grief because it's mm. so chaotic. There are no rules around it. Um, sometimes there can be like no boundaries um, that people want to instill some sense of order. And it's very tempting to think that there might be timelines or, um, you know, after like a set amount of time, uh, you should be feeling like X, Y, and Z. And what I just found was that that was untrue. And that's not how I felt at all. And that there are signs that people look for as an indication that maybe you might have, you know, um, the phrase, which I absolutely loathe, have moved on, possibly. And I just think that <laughs> Once you have been through something that has just stripped off like everything, like every layer of emotion, everything that you possibly thought was true, that will, you know, the things that we believe are so important to keep ourselves safe and all of that. And once you've kind of stripped all of that away, 
um, there's sort of a truth at the bottom of all of that, which is which is that with a lot of the stuff you have to build it yourself. So you you know things that make you feel safe, things that make you feel sane, um, and so on. These are these are things that you have to actually choose for yourself. And I think in before I experienced grief, I just took. I just moved through life as it was happening and reacted to it rather than actively having a think about what I needed in it. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, for example, the classic is um, is meeting someone new. And I, and I knew that, you know, and I, I still think to this day, um, you know, people in my life think, and with very well intentions, good intentions, that if I meet someone that shows that I've, that I've moved forward or I've moved on. Now, relationships or dating, as you know, is really, really tricky. Mm. Like it is not necessarily a sign of, he I mean, sometimes, yes, it can be a sign of healing. Yeah. But I just think, let's say I got into a long-term relationship or a relationship a year or two after Rob had died and everyone was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like it shows that she's getting better or whatever. Um, it wouldn't have actually really been the sign of it, of anything. It just would have been like, oh, okay, I found this person that I'm in a relationship with. Mm. It would have told no, it wouldn't have told you anything about how broken I might have been inside, um, how I'm actually relating to this other person and so on. And so I find things like that, these things that we put a lot of importance into that society deems to be you know, important. And if you attain that status, whether that's getting married, having kids, whatever it might be, and that means that you're okay. And that then you're kind of given, you know, this like um, bucket of respect because you've managed to attain this particular position. Mm. I think it's just absolute bullshit. Like, it's just like, I know people who are in marriages who are unhappy. I know people who have kids who are unhappy. Um, people who are single who are very happy or who are unhappy. I just think it just depends on the core of you as a person. And if you want those things, and if you can add them to your life, then great, but you shouldn't have to. And I think the one thing I would say that grief gave me after that was basically like putting on a pair of goggles and actually being able to see everything clearly. Um, and I say that like it was a, a thunderbolt moment and it wasn't, it was a very long, painful, arduous process. But when I was kind of coming through it, I did feel like I could see things for how they were mm. and how much importance we put in things um, that actually really aren't important. Actually, you mentioned the, the term moving on and this actually, I mm. wanted to ask you about this. What do you, How do you feel about this term? You mentioned that you, you don't like it. I wonder if you could elaborate on that. The term moving on, um, which I have been very vocal about and thankfully so because now people that know me don't use it in front of me anymore mm. um is that it implies that your grief is something that you kind of just have like popped on a chair and then you're mm. moving further and further away from it and that's not how it works um and it's just it is something that the, like the size and the shape of it never decreases it never diminishes so i could say to you that rob passed away five years ago and um, someone will listen to this and think, oh my God, that was a long time ago. And literally I feel like if you asked me to get into the headspace of remembering what it was like on the day he died, it is literally like it happened yesterday. So time f is elastic around it and it's not yeah. sort of one, you know, kind of like, I, I just don't think it's as, as easy as people yeah. think it is. So the idea of moving on is not what people assume that it is. And actually, when I think that people say that they're moving on um, or refer to you moving on, it's kind of hoping that you're going to care less about your grief. Yeah. And that's just not how it works. And the other thing around it is that the one thing, especially when you are kind of like directly at the ground zero of the person you've lost. And so by that, I mean, like, let's say you are the spouse or the parent or the sibling, right? Mm. Um, or the child. Um, it's just, you don't want to forget them and you don't want other people to forget them. Like that is like the one of the worst aspects of grief. And so moving on implies that they're kind of put in a box and then that box is put on a high shelf. And then we don't really open that box because mm. it's really sad and it's really difficult. 
And I have a huge problem with that because Rob is someone I think about every day. It sits at the back of almost every thought. It doesn't mean that I'm always sad. Like this is the other distinction. It doesn't mean that I'm always sad or that it's really painful, but he's a part of me. He's a Mm. part of this experience. He will always be a part of whatever I bring into like any relationship, any friendship, any interaction that I have with someone. So I can't move on from that. Like it's become part of me, but it's so a better phrase for me is, is something like moving forward because that implies Mm. that you've taken your grief and you're moving forward with it. And that can include things like, you know, healing around it and just things becoming easier to live with and less hard to look at and, and just less raw. And that's the way that I would look at it. But the moving on is, to me, it represents everything that we, we've gotten wrong in society about how grief works and stages of grief and so on. That's probably why I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I think fair enough. So the first time I ever came into any kind of proximity mm. with another person's grief was when when my grandmother passed away mm. and I saw the Im- impact it had on my mum, who was so close to her. Yeah. And she, one thing she found unbearable about the whole process was that people just didn't talk about it Mm. people didn't want to acknowledge it they didn't want to mention it in case she would fall apart you know and start to cry and she was like can anyone just acknowledge this thing that is a major part of my life and I, I just think that what you said earlier just will resonate with so many people because it's that like why why can't we talk about it you know yeah I mean it's it's a tough one because I think that it's basically about giving people the option. Mm. And the idea that um, you're going to upset someone, particularly in that first year, is it's not possible because it's in your head all the time. Mm. Like it is the thing that that is just literally taking a piece off you, you know, one inch at a time. So for someone to kind of ask me a question is not going to be the thing that's going to make me go from uh like quote marks a normal state to a grief state because mm. when you're in a grief state you're probably in that state already it's not like someone's reminding you because that's that's just everything of who you are at this point in time and i think that there are ways of how you ask that question so you mm. don't have to like ask some you know really intense like yeah I mean, for me, like, for example, the question which is unacceptable is when someone asks me how Rob killed himself. And I'm like, you don't need to know that information. You never ask that question. What you could do is you could ask me how I'm doing. Like Mm. asking someone, how are you doing? Are you okay? Um, That gives the power to me to answer that or to just go, you know what? Thank you so much for asking, but I'd rather not talk about it at the Mm. moment. And that's fine. But to me, I mean, maybe everyone is different. I don't know. But to me, it is worse if I'm having a conversation with someone and we're just skirting around the issue and they haven't asked me the question. I mean, now is obviously very different, Mm. but definitely I would say the first year or if I had met someone I hadn't seen since he'd passed away and they hadn't brought it up in conversation or asked me, Mm. I remember that. Like I still, five years on, I still remember I remember that because it's a very, very, very deep hurt. And I understand that the other person doesn't want to upset you. But in my mind, I'm just thinking there's also, let's just be frank and acknowledge that it's also awkwardness. And Mm. that person did not want to have to step into a state where they felt awkward and they deemed that more important than overcoming it to ask if the other person was okay. Whether or not that's fair, I'm not sure, but that's how I felt about it. So speaking of moving forward, to use your your yeah. term, um, I wanted to ask you about about your book and about this. What I and I loved this when you you know the eat, pray, fuck it <laughs> moment. I wanted to I want to know you know tell tell us what what that moment was, what that experience was. I think with the book, so this is in search of silence, and this was the whole the whole theme of this book was about how you move forward mm. from something like. Um, that and also um, at the time I was working as um, 
executive editor at HuffPost. And it was basically about just leaving my support network and mm. leaving a big job and just going and traveling and figuring some stuff out and just trying to be as far away from people <laughs> as <laughs> admirable <laughs> as possible. Because I felt at the time, although this is now incorrect, but I felt at the time that, that the problem was just being around people. And if I could just kind of... <laughs> go somewhere really remote then things would be easier in some ways they were but then i also did realize that actually i quite like being around people um even though sometimes it can be difficult but i think with um with eat pray fuck you which was the um the first chapter mm. was definitely that thing that we were talking about in terms of um you know societal expectations of you um, the things that we place a lot of importance in and the things that we, you know, really, really strive towards and put all of our energy into without necessarily really asking ourselves if those are the things that we particularly want. Mm. Um, and for sure, I include like getting into relationships in that and also, you know, just whether or not to have kids. And I think that um, I didn't really have any answers around all of that stuff. I just knew that I didn't feel like I fit into my life in England. I felt that a lot of my friends, um, you know, had were kind of carrying on with their lives, which mm. is the, the perfectly like, you know, a normal thing to do for them. Mm. Um, but I felt like I didn't fit in because I kind of felt like I'd been taken off the timeline or that I thought I was traveling down and then I just didn't know what was happening and I knew that um you know there were I did feel the pressures of oh when is she going to get into another relationship like what's going to happen in terms of kids this that and the other and I just didn't want to be part of that at all right. um so I just wanted to take myself away from stuff to be able to actually have a think about things mm. um it wasn't really about running away from my life it wasn't about going somewhere to find the answer in you know some like guru or some kind of like um you know theology or way of thinking mm. or whatever i just literally wanted to go somewhere quiet to be able to have a think and i realize i've oversimplified no, I the, the entire book but there was a lot that i think i got from just being in general nature um and thinking about what all of that stuff meant to me and also in in that chapter at the start of the book you talk about like this the huge decision of kind of mm. leaving your job like how did you go about kind of like making that decision or was it a sim was it quite a simple one i mean it it took a few months to get to that conclusion because i think i felt when i initially had the thought I just thought this is great, but I can't do it because, mm. you know, I'm so enmeshed in my life in London. How could I possibly do it? Um, what would I then do for a job when I got back and so on? Because it wasn't a possibility to keep my job open. And actually, I didn't want to come back to the same job mm. after having been away for seven to eight months. Um, and so that was a really big part of it because it just felt impossible. Like when I look back at it now, I just think I don't know what my problem was. But at the time, those walls seemed insurmountable. And then I slowly sort of broke some of that down and it then kind of just got to actually quite a simple decision, which was, um, which I do write about in the book, which is, you know, if everything was going to continue mm. the way that it would continue without me leaving, without me doing this, that and the other, would I be okay with that? And I had like quite a strong reaction to that. Like it literally made me want to throw up. Like the the prospect of being in the same job, and I loved my job, like don't get me wrong, it wasn't mm -hmm. like I was having a bad time with it. But the prospect of being in my same job, of being in my same friends and family network, um, doing the same thing day after day um, was just, I, I, I couldn't, my brain just really rebelled against it. So the only recourse really was to then do the the other option which was basically to quit and to just mm. go you know you don't get the big realizations and you don't get to where you want to go to unless you take high risk decisions sometimes mm. and it's not that i'm necessarily saying that i quit because i wanted the answers around things it was more just even if it was a terrible decision i still would have learned something um, about myself that I would not have learned had I stayed in the same job and just kept going. And I think I was also very, very lucky to have a um, 
you know, a friend and um, a confidant in my sister mm. who is someone I, you know, call frequently for advice and vice versa where she basically just got me to it was almost like talking to a child where she just said so all of this stuff that you're really worried about in terms of not coming back and or rather coming back and not getting a job and no mm. one will hire you she was like so all of the things that you have at the moment at HuffPost she was like is it like a stapler like do you leave it behind <laughs> when you had your notice in or is it stuff that you will take with you because they're skills that you have yeah and I was like oh okay so like when I thought about it like that I just thought well actually yeah you know all of these are qualities that don't diminish because I decided to leave one workplace like I can use that <laughs> presumably um, I would imagine so <laughs> yeah and that's exactly what happened so um so yeah but it was it was probably one of the best decisions I think I've ever made. Well, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you kind of about the societal pressures surrounding mm. becoming a widow in your 30s and, you know, being a woman and how that, how people view that kind of experience. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not great because um, I think that there are no good associations with it. And um, it implies that, well, it doesn't imply, these these are the associations that we have with it, that um, once someone is a widow, uh, your usefulness, your attractiveness, your potential as a woman mm -hmm. is somehow kind of like sucked away and you're kind of like this husk and then that's it. And that's not how I felt at all. And um, and I just felt that there wasn't anything I could relate to because. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. If you're looking at, for example, aspects of dating, um, and I can have a conversation, right, with my peers or my friends or whatever about dating, but there is like a mass, and I, I can go, oh my God, isn't it really hard? And aren't apps crap? And all of this stuff. <laughs> they but, are. <laughs> yeah, but there is, a, there is a very big distinction between mm. my experience of it um, and their experience of it, because I can imagine the conversation um, taking place of like, let's say if a guy is dating me and explaining to his friends, like what my background is, like, mm. is she divorced? Is she this? Is she a widow? And I can see their faces like fall. Yeah. And it's not, it's not, it's not even so much like that they that I've been through something big. It's just a word that does not have any good connotations to it because yeah. it implies that basically like your life is over. Um, and that is something that I overwhelmingly found. So actually, sometimes I use it as a word. Some Mostly I, I don't really, uh, I definitely don't use it in, you know, profiles and so on. Um, but it did strike me that there was also a massive sexism when it comes to how widowers are viewed and how widows are viewed. 
Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, widowers are kind of, and I get, I get, I get exactly why this is. So widowers are viewed, and uh, apologies, because I am obviously hugely generalizing here, but this is how the mm. world seems to work in, in terms of my experience of it. Widowers are viewed as someone who has gone through something horrendous, but ultimately that kind of experience, which may have broken them slightly, um, actually could be an attractive quality mm. because you, the person, can go in and um, and nurture them and look after them. And that's why widowers back in the day used to get m remarried so quickly because they kind of needed a woman, like if you're talking about heterosexual relationships, they needed a woman to come in and actually like literally look mm. after the household and wash the dishes and cook food and all of that kind of stuff, right? Obviously nowadays it's completely different, but that, that still persists and that perception of it still remains. Mm which is that the idea of a slightly broken man is an attractive one because you could be the one to come in and save the day. You see it in Fleabag. Of course. Olivia Coleman. Exactly. Is that the woman that comes in to save the day. Absolutely. Now you flip that and you look at like a woman who has been through something, that is not an attractive prospect in a, in a you know, um, heterosexual relationship for a man because... Um, it just isn't because mm. if you're looking at like kind of the the roles that we have that we are conditioned to have around how women and men operate um the woman's supposed to be doing the looking after not the man right mm. um and what i would just say is that as a result of all of that kind of stuff mm. um i have not ever looked to someone romantically to be able to fix whatever has been going on inside of me. Mm. And it's given me a very clear understanding of how I compartmentalize and how I process my grief around Rob and what my expectations are of another relationship. Mm. The way that I view myself is that as a consequence of having met my grief directly head on, having done various things within the last five years um, to strengthen myself, is that anyone who enters into a relationship with me is entering into a relationship with someone who is resilient, who is self-sufficient, who has like a lot of compassion and a lot of kindness. Having said that, it's going to take a particular type of person to be able to see and appreciate that. And maybe that just weeds out the dickheads a bit faster than they normally <laughs> would have done. And I don't know, I don't know, but I'm just saying that, yes, the sexism is really unfair, Hopefully one day it will change. Mm. But the the sort of the optimistic or positive spin that I'm putting on it is that the only person I think who would really, who I would want to be with and who would want to be with me or date me is going to have to be someone who is um, not as strangled by conditioning as maybe other people might be and also might needs to definitely be emotionally intelligent enough to be able to recognize those qualities within me. And speaking of strength mm. i wanted to ask you about uh, a different type of strength <laughs> this is my transition, transition thank you very Rachel. much <laughs> so i want to talk about weightlifting mm. um and you you've spoken um about kind of how it's it's helped you find inner strength as well as obviously like you know the obvious yes. physical strength that you do get and i wanted to know how you how you got into that to begin with it actually all connect. It does actually mm -hmm. connect seamlessly to everything you've been asking me about. Perfect. Such a pro. <laughs> um, because it was it was to do with this sense of um, self-sufficiency. So mm. it was to do with um, how can I make myself someone who is self-sufficient? I'm not talking about like, you know, living in a shack and waving off people with a pitchfork or anything like that. I'm just talking about wanting to be able to do things myself. And if anyone comes along to help me or wants to be a part of my life, then great. Mm. Um, but I'm not going to hang around and wait for that day to happen. And in the interim period, I kind of needed like practical things doing. So like things moved around my house, like I needed to buy a new bed. Mm. Um, and it just occurred to me that I would either have to be the person that like calls my dad up to come over and help me out with stuff or a male friend. And I really didn't want to do any of those things. And I just thought I actually want to get strong enough to be able to do those things myself. Mm. And it literally started from something as simple as that. And also just because I think when you are also grieving quite heavily and there is a lot of that chaos that's around, 
um, something like this. I don't want to oversimplify this, but literally something like having a program or mm. a routine, stuff like that helps enormously. And especially if it's a routine, which means that you don't have to talk to other people. Mm. So, um, so my ability to socialize was just shot to shit for about, I would say two to three years where A, I didn't really want to, B, I just felt like I wanted to give myself like lots of breathing room in case, mm. you know, so I would, I could possibly go to a party, but I definitely want to know that I could just leave and not have to feel guilty yeah. about it. And going to the gym and doing especially weightlifting, um, because that's what I asked my trainer at the time to show me, it meant that I was learning something new. Um, but it also meant that I was kind of once a week hanging out with someone who didn't really know anything about my life. Mm. And then when I was going to the gym on my own, I was applying this new thing that I learned that made me feel really capable, that made me feel really useful, mm. but didn't have to talk to anyone else. Um, and that's how that kind of began. That was about mm. three years ago, I think. You wrote recent, I think it was recently, about mm. your experience as a South Asian woman who lifts weights. And I, I wonder if you could talk a, a little about the, the stereotypes faced by South Asian women surrounding sport and body types. Yeah. So when I was, when I started out in weightlifting, mm. you know, there weren't really any comments because I was just at the gym and still doing um what i refer to as you know the usual nonsense of i want to get strong but i i want to like still look really lean and not get bulky which by the way that ship has sailed and i <laughs> no longer um have that viewpoint but i started um competitively powerlifting um this is i started this about a year or so ago mm. And um, and that was very different. There was a very different response to that versus right. me going to the gym and like lifting a few weights and doing a bit of hit, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it was because number one, South Asian women don't really lift weights. Like it's not really a common thing. You definitely don't do something like powerlifting, which is where the goal is to lift the heaviest weight that you can possibly handle. Mm. And I think that there was, in addition to, you know, I think sort of concerns that my physique was getting a bit muscular and it was changing and this, that and the other, which is seriously like no one else's business right. but my own. Mm. Um, but in, in, you know, in South Asian cultures, we do have like hyper femininity is a thing where, I mean, just generally in the world, like women are conditioned to be as mm. small and, you know, petite as possible. Um, but in South Asian cultures, you you have that pressure, but it's obvious there's a much bigger pressure to be feminine. And the current stereotype that we have is that, you know, doing anything that creates muscles or anything around weights is not feminine activity. Um, and that to me was a huge issue because I just thought, you know, there are, there is so much to that I've gained from weightlifting, whether it is being empowered, whether that's being confident and that applies to every single aspect of my life, not just when I'm in the gym. But definitely, I think that the idea that, for example, that I could hurt myself because I'm, you know, only a little girl um, was just nuts. I mean, again, this isn't specific to no. like being South Asian, but, you know, I had to sit my parents down and have a conversation with them because they were basically passing on their concerns mm. from rando like family, friends and cousins and none of whom who do weightlifting and they sure as shit don't do competitive lifting. Mm. And um, and I'm like, so these guys have basically seen like a weightlifting fail video on YouTube and they're now telling you to tell me to be careful. I said, that's unbelievably patronizing mm. because I have a coach, I do physio, I I don't want to be injured. Like, so these are all very good yeah. indicators that I take this quite seriously. And for me, I think definitely like once you're, once you've kind of overcome that mountain, you then go into <laughs> the powerlifting arena and like you're the only brown woman who's there. And it's just, it's hard. Like mm. it is really hard. And, you know, it, it shouldn't be that way. And there should be more South Asian women that feel that they should be able to weightlift. Yeah. Um, I've got a very um, strong theory backed by no science whatsoever. <laughs> In that actually, I think that, you know, genetically, there are some really good reasons for why South Asian women should weightlift. I think that we've got really good leverages when it comes to doing squats, for example, mm. and so on. Um, it also helps like massively with things like osteoporosis is cardiovascular, like all of this wow. stuff. But we don't really know any of that. And I think that 
there's such a huge bind around you know not letting women be able to access this kind of stuff when they start doing it not really supporting the journey that they're on and i just for me there is a real deep sadness around the fact that it should not have taken me this long to get to weightlifting and sure as hell when i started weightlifting i just wish that people had been a bit more supportive about that last year i got a personal trainer mm-hmm. and re- one thing i really struggled with and it had never occurred to me to like even address in my mind like what it was that was preventing me from going into one literally one part of the mm. gym i just was like no that's like that's not an area that i should like walk into and it's like where all the weights are and i, I honestly still struggle now like it just still feel like i'm the only woman there surrounded by these massive guys yeah. who are doing deadlifts and i i felt so self-conscious and i wondered if you had any advice for anyone like me who might be like feeling super intimidated by that really male dominated space the advice that i would say is so if you are in a like a proper powerlifting or a weightlifting mm. space you will see loads of big dudes around and you may assume that they might think, oh my God, you know, look at her, look at what she's putting on the bar. Isn't it really mm. piddly or whatever? <laughs> and if they are genuine like powerlifters or weightlifters, they won't really be thinking that because right. the one thing I would say about our community is that it doesn't matter what you lift respect is accorded to you because the fact is is that we know you know what training you would have had to go through the psychological element to it that you have to overcome to get to that space mm. and so you know at a powerlifting competition for example everyone is cheered on in the same way because we know how much it's taken to even get to that platform in the first place if you're in a commercial gym right it is a different situation because um you don't know everyone's background you might have uh, lots of different guys who who are in there let's say um and for sure yeah you mm. might go into a section and there's and there's no there's no women in there at all which i think should is isn't great but i would say that the way that i get around that is um hyping myself up with music so when i'm in there uh and just se- even it's even like setting yourself up in an area if you need to mm which means that you're not really clocking anyone else around you. So at the beginning, I used to do that um, where I would I would kind of like choose certain corners of the gym where I could do my stuff and not necessarily have to just be, you know, near certain t- groups or types of people, whatever. Also just timing in the gym. Like sometimes for me, like especially on days when I just didn't have it in me to be in the gym, you know, at peak time, surrounded by like loads of guys because I just was feeling a bit fragile that day maybe. Um, I would just kind of, you know, move that around in a way that worked for me. Having said that, there is something to be said for the more confident that you get in that space is to understand that being in there is really important because Mm. it's visibility for other women. So the same way that that day that you walked in and you didn't see any other women in there, you being in that space means that it's kind of like you're going to help another woman who might be walking past Mm. who would have thought that that space wasn't for them and encourage them to get in there. And the second thing is also just that, I mean, I've talked to my sister about this because like, I literally don't care. Like the way that I view my being in a gym, wherever that gym is, Mm. is that I have equal right to be in that gym as a guy, like as a guy who might be lifting three times the amount that I'm lifting. There are people who will make you feel bad about that. But if, for example, they won't let you work in on their equipment or they'll huff around because you're taking too long, let them do their own thing. Like you don't have to be part of that. That is not part of your energy. If someone is behaving like that, that tells me that they're not a proper lifter because if they were a proper lifter, they would have been respectful and they would have worked with you alongside you. So the minute someone behaves like that, it's in my head, I'm like, they're already like persona non grata because I'm Mm. like, you don't understand it you don't actually take this seriously. Like you literally probably just come in here to do your arms and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. And just make it kind of fun for yourself because it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be so intense. I love this like flying the flag, like (laughs) representing women in the male dominated space in the gym. Yeah, it is really important. And I would say that I get a lot of messages from people Mm. who have said that the visibility of um, writing about weightlifting, featuring other women who do weightlifting, me posting videos of me doing Mm. it, 
um, has kind of given, has helped them to try their first weightlifting class. And that was a humble brag, but that shows me that visibility is really important. And that's why I think everyone should do it, even if it makes you feel silly, because just even like posting an Insta story or something like that of you doing it will make someone else feel like that's okay to do it. But also like, I think that we defer in gyms, for example, we defer to men knowing more in the weight space Mm. because they do weights and have muscles. And I'm like, actually, there's one person I'll defer to, the one with the qualification. So if a PT comes over to me Mm. and tells me that I'm doing something wrong, I mean, I was still like the person who is, you know, um, who's at the top of this pyramid is obviously my own coach. Mm. But if a PT comes up to me, then fine, I'll listen to them. I'm not going to listen to like Greg, who's like on some (laughs) random like bench press, who I don't know, who I don't know where he learned it from. I have no idea if he learned it from his dad. And that's the thing. I think we need to stop assuming, making that default assumption that men know everything about weights just because they're men. Like There are lots of men who do know about weights, but Mm. guess what? Like a lot of women also know about weights too. Well, thank you so much. You are just literally a constant source of inspiration. So thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. If you liked this episode of History Becomes Her, please subscribe, rate and review. If you have suggestions of history-making women we should feature on our podcast, or you simply want to get in touch, find us on Twitter at HBHpod. And you can find me on Twitter at RVT9. History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christiane Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.